0: Before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe.
2: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, CAP's managing editor who resides in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Cobus, today we're going to come back to the debt issue, in part because the news that's just been piling up is getting worse and worse. Earlier this week, we learned that Kenya is struggling to make payments on a $157 million China Exim Bank loan to finance Nairobi's Southern Bypass Road. Now, $157 million is not a huge loan by Kenyan standards, considering the fact that the standard gauge railway loans were in the billions of dollars, but it speaks to this issue that Kenya, like a number of African countries, is struggling to deal with the myriad of economic crises that are bearing down on them and making it more difficult to service their debt. Uh, The country's auditor general says Kenya now owes the Chinese state bank $31.3 million in arrears and delayed payments for the period of 2021. So payments in 2022 have not been made. Now, what's interesting is that last year, you'll recall our discussion about China Exim Bank's refusal to allow Kenya Railways to continue its deferral of payments for the standard gauge railway loans. $760 million of repayments were made last year. And that's a lot of money for a country like Kenya today, given the fact that they're under such duress from a weakening currency, a strengthening yen. We're going to get into some of these criteria that are really putting pressure. On a number of countries, a key report came out today from Shanghai, and we'll get into some of the details there. But let me just give you some statistics here, just to set the table for us on where we are on Chinese debt in developing countries. Sixty-eight of the world's poorest countries will pay fifty-two point eight billion dollars in debt costs this year. Now, this is coming from Yuan Mengdi and Christopher Nedipal Wong at the Green Finance and Development Center at Fudan University in Shanghai. Fourteen billion of that will be sent to China, or about 26% of all of those debt servicing costs. Now, bondholders will get 17%, and the World Bank and other IDAs will get 9%. So China's role is definitely outsized here. In the 68 countries that they looked at, these are all the DSSI countries, that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. Those are the countries that are identified by the group of 20, the G20, as being the neediest and among the poorest who need the debt uh, relief. Chinese debt exposure was larger than the combined debt of all official bilateral creditors and is only surpassed by the World Bank. So it gives you some indication on the scale with which we're talking about here. Now, on the debt sustainability side, this is interesting because China has come under intense criticism from the United States and Europe for not doing enough within the G20 framework. And the folks at Fudan University at the Green Finance and Development Center, they found that China deferred payments of $5.7 billion compared with just $4.5 billion by Paris Club members. So take that into account when you listen to Janet Yellen, who's the US Treasury Secretary's critique of the Chinese not doing enough on debt issues. Now, Cobus, these debt issues have been a big problem for a number of years. But it's gotten a lot worse lately by a convergence of factors that are now bearing down on countries like Kenya in Ghana right now. Even your own South Africa is starting to feel some of these pressures. Ghana's central bank uh, just this week has announced its biggest ever interest rate hike, and it's seeking to slow rampant inflation. Inflation is now a huge problem, not just in Africa, but in a number of developing countries and also in the United States as well. Kobus, your own reserve bank, the South African Reserve Bank, is likely to hike interest rates by another 25 basis points this week to four and a quarter percent, also because of rising inflation. Then there's the U.S. Federal Reserve, and market watchers in New York are watching to see when there's going to be an interest rate hike there. The Fed is now saying that they may creep up interest rates sooner than expected because of inflation there. What that means is that a lot of the dollars that were coming into emerging markets in places like Africa are going to start walking back to the United States, where interest rates are higher and earnings are going to be higher on savings. That is more bad news for developing countries. Inflation is also weakening currencies, which makes it a lot more expensive to service all that dollar-denominated debt. It's also bad news for Africans that depend on Chinese imports that the Chinese currency, the yuan, is still really strong at 6.35 to the dollar. People are expecting that to continue to strengthen as well. That makes the cost of imports higher. And think about a country like Kenya where billions of dollars are imported, but only tens of millions or low hundreds of millions are sent back in exports. So huge trade imbalances when you have a strong yuan, that makes it more difficult for, for those countries that depend on them. And then let's not forget about the impact that the war in Ukraine is having on the price of food in many developing countries, especially in Africa, where costs are going up because of disruptions in wheat supplies. So, Kobus, I don't want to sound overly alarmist here, but it does feel like the problems are now starting to compound and to snowball to a point where there's real Reason for serious concern.
3: Yes, and I think I think you know many global South countries are really starting to feel that concern, um, and I think it might be playing out in in some of the positions that China is is taking in relation to Ukraine. Um, you know, which which I think is increasingly moving in this direction, where they they keep calling for for countries they keep they keep kind of criticizing the economic impact of 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 the 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 anti-russian sanctions and then um you know criticizing pressure on putting put on poor countries to choose sides um so it's you know that, that that's an, just in the the kind of geopolitics side of it is an interesting kind of framing of of, of that view um on, on a larger context like all of this all, all of these you know dynamics obviously impacting short and medium term kind of prospects in in the global South, but on the glo- on the longer term, all of this also has to be put into the context of climate change and the need for all of these countries to to do to invest a ton of money into um into climate mitigation and adaptation you know because because the, the kind of long-term impacts of not spending that money is so much worse so you know so, so it, it raises all of these questions not only in how how these countries are going to get through this this tough time now but how they're gonna make sure that you know that the tough times don't kind of just drag on into the indefinite future, um, you know, and, and where all of this in new investment is going to come from.
2: Well, let's look at the intersection between climate and finance and debt. There was a very interesting new report that came out, along with a data set that reveals for the first time in more than 20 years. China did not issue a single loan for any energy project around the world last year. That is a dramatic development when you consider just a few years ago, China financed $35 billion of energy projects in developing countries, and that now has steadily fallen in recent years to zero. That finding emerged from an update to Boston University's China's Global Energy Finance Database that is produced by the Global Development Policy Center at BU. Along with that data set, by the way, the team there also published a new policy brief as well That brief was written by xin Ma, Cecilia Han Springer, and Honest Shao. We'll post a link to that in our show notes for subscribers to our newsletter. You've already received links to that, and it's on our website. But for our discussion today, uh, we're gonna step back from that report and look at the broader trends, and for that, we're thrilled to have back on the show again Kevin Gallagher, who's the director of the Global Development Policy Center, and Cecilia Han Springer, who's joining us for the first time and one of the authors of that policy brief and who's worked on the new data set. She's also the assistant director of the Global China Initiative at the Global Development Policy Center. A good chilly morning to you both in Boston.
0: Glad to be here, great to hear you folks. Good morning.
2: Let's start with you, Cecilia. You worked on the new data set. You helped to kind of mold the the findings from that that revealed that Chinese energy financing from around the world for the first time in decades fell to zero last year. Can you tell us more about the data set and the findings and whether or not this is something that looks as significant as it sounds.
1: Sure. So our China's global energy finance database did yield this dramatic finding this year when we were looking at all of 2021, but it's not entirely out of step with the decreasing trend in China's overseas energy development finance that we've been seeing since that peak that you mentioned. And especially when you look at the factors that were at play in 2021, the persisting impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic were narrowing borrowing capacities in BRI host countries. And in addition, on the Chinese side, the intense lockdown means that it was really hard to strike new global deals. Um, On top of that, there may have been a role in um, Xi Jinping's announcement that China would not support Uh, New coal projects overseas. And so given that in the past, uh, two thirds of China's overseas energy development finance has been in fossil fuels, there may have also been some wariness driven in part by climate policy. So I think all of these factors converge together, in really a perfect storm that constrained new energy development finance.
3: Kevin, um, when, when I heard that that statistic coming, coming out, I thought, okay, this, this probably is, you know, kind of, as, as Celia said, this partly a reflection of, of this no-coal pledge um, that, that Xi Jinping um, issued uh, uh, last year. Do you foresee, you know, kind of a flip happening and a kind of a, a return to more investment, for, for to, and particularly to green investment happening? Or is there going to be a, a, a phase where this kind of very low levels of investment just kind of continue while while they're trying to kind of like work out their new approach
0: well eric mentioned the weather earlier and uh The only folks that are worse than predicting the future than weather people are economists, but I'll give it a shot. I would say that there is some pent-up supply on the China side. China has remained committed to the Belt Road Initiative, but because of their response to COVID-19 with significant quarantining and lockdowns and so forth, they haven't been able to go out there and, and cut deals. And these aren't barn markets where you can sit in New York and speculate on currencies. You have to sit and negotiate about a big railway project. One of the things that a lot of the statistical and the case study evidence shows about the BRI is that it is a, in large part driven by the amount of dollars that the country has. Back in the in the in the first few years to, to 2010, 2011, when Chinese overseas development finance was surging, China had a current account surplus, meaning that they were exporting more than they were importing, about 10% percent of GDP. Uh, in 2018, 2019, it started to get closer to 1%, and for certain quarters, it was actually negative. And so there, there literally just weren't the dollars to, uh, to invest it overseas. Well, all of that has changed. Uh, just a few months ago, uh, China surpassed Germany to have the largest current account surplus in the world. So one, there's the policy commitment to the BRI. Two, there are dollars, although, of course, for some of the factors that you just referred to uh, that are going on in the world economy right now, you want to hold on to those and hedge because you don't know what the future looks like. So I wouldn't expect 2022 to see a significant uptick uh, in Chinese overseas development finance. But uh, that's just uh, more money uh, on the side that, uh, that when they eventually get out there to start cutting deals, that they'll be more there. What we do know, because we work with uh, different entities in China, is that they're taking this time to do some due diligence and think about uh, a 2.0 approach to, to working on all this. One of the things, obviously, is the pledge to be low carbon, but I think we can also expect uh, some more due diligence and moving into some countries that uh, don't uh, don't have as much debt distress as some of the traditional customers that China's dealt with in the past.
2: Well, let's think about that 2.0 idea because 1.0, they seem to be outgrowing right now and that the first wave of their of their lending was in the form of resource for infrastructure deals or these concessional loans or market rate loans. But all three of those are now running into certain problems as we're seeing in places like Angola and Kenya and Venezuela and and elsewhere. So, Cecilia, when you look at the ways that Chinese are thinking about financing this infrastructure because they can't keep all these dollars that Kevin's talking about locked up in Beijing simply because it's not being put to good use. It's not being put to work. They're reluctant to plow that money into U.S. Treasury bonds simply because that's no longer politically correct. They have to do something with it. But the key question now is what? So if they're not lending on energy, and maybe they will lend with energy, what will the models look like given the challenges that both the borrowers and the creditors are up against?
1: Well, I think if you look at China's energy lending over time, it definitely has changed in its composition as well as the strategic goals that I think – Um, It's been serving, as you mentioned earlier on, um, a decade ago or even more, um, China's policy banks were lending to a lot of oil and gas projects, a lot of upstream projects oriented around securing energy supply. Um, And more recently, there's been more of a focus on the power sector. Looking beyond just development finance, there's also been uh, relatively stable foreign direct investment Um, into the energy sector and moving more towards electricity as well as transmission and distribution projects. So I think that China is starting to focus on um, energy-related development that is not necessarily based on bringing that energy in whatever form back to China. Um, And part of the focus on the power generating sector overseas has been to absorb China's own excess capacity of power generating equipment, uh, providing opportunities for those businesses to go overseas. So absorbing the physical capital that's associated um, with the trends that we were discussing earlier um, about these current account surpluses. And so I think that going forward, uh, this is really a moment for China to evaluate the prospects for a green BRI and how that would apply in the energy sector, a low carbon BRI. Um, especially in the power sector where China has provided so much finance and investment already for coal-fired power plants. What is the future of that fleet of coal plants going to look like? Um, What will this mean for development of natural gas? And especially in terms of meeting Xi Jinping's uh, statement that China would step up support for low carbon energy, how are China's development banks Going to get involved in renewable energy, they've been traditionally uh, reluctant to support renewables projects overseas, um, and so I think that will be a big question about how these um, policy banks are going to engage in low carbon energy and if there could be new models and mechanisms for doing so.
0: If I could underscore the the equity piece, uh, as as you folks said in your in your introduction, the absorptive capacity of relatively expensive debt uh, that China has on offer uh, is is very limited in, in the world economy and, and only getting worse. And so in addition to perhaps uh, moving into more lower carbon loans, I think we're going to see a diversity of instrumentation, meaning more equity. If you look at the last time there was a sudden stop in Western Firms dumped their assets in the South China was very active in the mergers and acquisitions markets, uh, picking up assets around the world, and so you could expect for them to take more equity stakes uh, on the commercial end, Uh, and that there's a a a growing battery of uh, investment funds: the Silk Road Fund, the China Africa Development Fund, obviously China's sovereign wealth fund. Uh, These uh, these instruments uh, might be. Might be more apt to be used in a in a in a realm where uh, further debt is harder to take on. Cecilia,
3: circling back to your to your answer, you mentioned that the Chinese policy banks have been reluctant to fund renewables. I was wondering what. What underlies that that attitude, considering that China's you know domestic renewable market is is huge, um, and and you know it produces a lot of of renewable capacity. So why why are they not why is it not following the similar logic as you know kind of as as we saw with with coal, just kind of rolling it out into the world?
1: Yeah, I think that it's really important to focus not only on the push factors within China, so to speak, but also what's happening in host countries. And um, unfortunately, it's just a fact that a lot of host countries have not yet built up enabling environments for renewable energy, nor are they um, going to China to uh, to request renewable energy projects and in many cases are, are still focused on fossil fuel development. So I think a big part of the answer to your question, Cobus, is really about Um, about host country demand. Uh, That being said, I do think that uh, China's policy banks have historically been interested in much larger scale projects where, um, you know, major centralized generating projects featuring coal or hydropower have been a focus um, and renewable energy projects being distributed and intermittent nature in nature are relatively um, unknown or untested from the perspective of these policy banks. Um, and so I think that has been a major um, barrier. So, so a perception barrier about bankability risks, um, and perceiving that they would face some of these technical um, and infrastructural bottlenecks uh, in those host countries. Uh, so I think there's, you know, ongoing. Uh, work to be done to continue to make the case for renewable, renewable energy overseas for China's policy banks as well as thinking of ways to potentially bundle renewable energy projects with the associated um, grid uh, upgrades that will be needed to help absorb that renewable energy um, or other technologies where where China may be able to play a role in, in rolling out these packages of renewable energy plus grid upgrades plus even storage.
2: Kevin let's pick up on that con- on what Cecile was talking about in terms of host country demand and I I'm just thinking about the moment that we're in right now and Europe is in somewhat of a panic because they're about to cut off all vestiges of contact with Russia who they've depended on for oil and gas for a long time and now all of the talk of renewables seems to be giving way to holy crap, we have to make up for the fact that we're not buying gas from Russia anymore. So conversations are opening up with Algeria, with Nigeria, with any number of oil providers in the Gulf. And we're not hearing a lot of rhetoric coming out of of Brussels about renewable energy. And I'm just wondering now if we're going to see a big setback in the drive for renewable energy simply because of the war between Russia and Ukraine or the war on Ukraine and and, in the demand coming from the Chinese who need to find replacements for their Russian oil and Europeans who are doing the same and maybe now having conversations about hydrocarbons that they would have had about renewable sources. What's your thought on that?
0: Well, we're really paying the price for climate inaction across the world economy. This conflict would look very differently if we had met our targets and started transitioning our economies long ago. And hopefully this crisis won't be yet another one that we put to waste and that Uh, Of course, we need to meet immediate needs, and the supply is not there to to flick the switch and do it all right now. But if this isn't the loudest wake-up call we've heard in the century, uh, nothing else is.
2: Kobus, that is a man speaking to your heart right there, because you have been saying the same thing, haven't you? Yes, yes. You know, kind
3: of. I've, I've I've been kind of winding up and down that. You know, that that exactly as Kevin said. You know, kind of if if Europe had successfully decarbonized their their economies, then we wouldn't be facing this problem. It's so interesting that both this both this issue of of recipient country demand and the kind of low level of attention being paid to renewables in even in in developing um, in in developed countries kevin and cecilia like like what do you feel the renewables industry should do to like kind of move themselves into into the center of this conversation it seems it seems like there's a kind of a renewable shaped gap in the middle of all in all of all of these these kind of conversations at the moment
1: i can start i think that there are many regionally specific challenges to build out of renewable energy and in some Places it's constrained by political factors, and other places it's constrained by technical factors um, related to the structure of the grid. And so, I think one one major area where there could be some potential for scaling up engagement, particularly with China on renewable energy with the Global South, firstly is to explore creative co-financing mechanisms, um, bringing in partners, uh, including from uh, the Global North. Uh, who may have uh, experience in capacity building and technical assistance for developing renewable energy for more, from more of a concessional perspective. Um, you know, really, the more finance, uh, the better, I think, uh, in terms of unlocking um, this infrastructure bottleneck problem. And so there may be space uh, for coordination, if not direct cooperation. Um and secondly, I think a major barrier, especially in the SATIC region, which we had a report that came out um, in late 2020 specifically about unlocking development finance for renewable energy in the SATIC region, um, is, is to really focus on building up a pipeline of projects uh, that that are ready to be financed, um, things that are essentially shovel-ready um, for someone uh, to to come in, for example, a Chinese actor to come in and help uh, finance that project. So I think that sort of pipeline has been a major barrier and could be an opportunity going forward.
2: In the SADIC region, you're referring to as the Southern Africa development community, right? Yes. Okay, good. Let's just pick up on that question of, you said, China potentially collaborating with partners in the global north. There was some news that came out a couple of weeks ago that China and France had signed an agreement to do work collaboratively on $1.7 billion worth of projects. I think it was seven projects total, six of them would have been in Africa. That was kind of a shock to some people, simply because we haven't seen the Chinese and Europeans, certainly not the Americans, work collaboratively like this, especially given that Global Gateway and B and B3W—that's the Build Back Better World Initiative. The we're coming up, by the way, on the one-year anniversary since the announcement, and we have not seen anything more since a listening tour. So that's uh, we'll we'll see. We're going to have a little party on the B3W anniversary in July and see if anything. Who's got money down that nothing happens before July? But anyway, that's (laughs) a separate show we'll do. But I guess Cecilia, I want to pick up on what you were talking about this collaboration. The mood between most European countries and China, and the United States and China, and certainly the Japanese in China, is not one that's really that conducive to collaborating, both in the public sector and the private sector. Where do you see the opportunity in the, between China and global North to collaborate on these kinds of issues in places like the SADC?
1: Well, from the U.S. perspective, you know, actually just last week I was um, in Washington D.C. Uh, providing testimony to. Uh, Congress on China's energy plans and practices. And just like you mentioned about Build Back Better World, B3W, um, one of the pleas that I made, you, I guess you could say, um, to the commission that I was speaking to was to really develop some more some more clarity and um, target setting for, for Build Back Better World. I think it's clear that in the current political environment that direct cooperation uh, may not be possible. And, and certainly there are few if, if no instances of, of coordinated um, Financing between US and Chinese entities for for clean energy development projects at, at the moment. But that doesn't mean that the Belt and Road Initiative and B3W can't work in parallel. I think China and the US share a commitment to global climate goals as well as sustainable development goals. And there's space for both on the global stage in terms of meeting um, demand for infrastructure uh, in the global south. And so, as I mentioned, I think, you know, China has experience uh, and uh, an advantage in deploying development finance uh, with great rapidity. And at a very large scale, Uh, the U.S. can draw on uh its decades of experience uh, with many countries, these bilateral relationships and a long history of providing uh, technical assistance. Um, and I think that there there's definitely uh, room for both. and uh, you know, looking at the kinds of energy infrastructure that China has engaged in historically, it's largely coal and hydropower, but there's a moment where now uh, where they're on the verge of of, you know potentially shifting towards low carbon sources, um, and the U.S. does have a lot of expertise uh, in that area. There are regional partnerships, for example, in the Mekong, um, where the U.S. has been engaging, where China has also been engaging, and um, you know it hasn't uh, led to direct conflict yet, and certainly could continue in a coordinated manner in the future.
3: Kevin, are you? What kind of kind of models are you seeing? Kind of emerging to deal with some of these problems particularly you know like circling back to the, to the beginning of, of the show kind of eric mentioned all of these countries in debt distress these same countries also have to you know kind of invest very heavily you know kind of in order to ensure some kind of climate resilient future um are you seeing the you know kind of greater enthusiasm for for pro, um for tools like like debt for climate swaps for example um and what kind of other other kind of possible solutions are are emerging if any
0: well we we really need uh, at least a, a three-pronged approach countries need more liquidity as you know uh, the SDR issuance was historical but the rechanneling of that has been has been stalled a little bit African countries only only received a small amount of the of the 650 billion dollars worth of uh, special drawing rights. So number one is we need more liquidity. Number two, we need more concessional finance. And so these development finance institutions, whether they be the China Development Bank or the World Bank or the African Development Bank, uh, even uh, with their great credit ratings, non-concessional finance with interest rates going up in the United States is not going to be affordable or absorptive for many of the countries in the region and low and middle income countries across the world. So in addition to those two, many countries are also going to need real debt relief. And I'm a little more optimistic on this than I was in December of 2021, because on one level, uh, both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank admitted that the common framework that they helped design through the G20 is a failure and needs to be replaced. Uh, In January of 2020, uh, the World Bank, in its World Development Report, sounded the alarm that uh, the 60 or, or more countries already in debt distress could see a sudden stop and go over a cliff just with the US interest rate hike. Well, what a difference war in the Ukraine makes. We've had the interest rate hike. We have absolutely spiking oil and gas prices, and we have absolutely spiking wheat prices, which trickles over into the entire grain market. And so now just one concern, interest rate rises is compounded by oil and wheat some countries like mozambique are net oil importers and net agricultural importers those are the kinds of countries now that you have to be very very concerned about so why am i a little optimistic well there's appetite and realization among the international institutions that uh that the common framework uh didn't work uh eric mentioned that yes, China is a third of the financing for African countries, but the and that Janet Yellen has a point that yes, it is true that China has been the, was the most active in the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which was repealed at the end of 2021. But that's in the numerator. Uh, the Paris Club isn't very active in this space anymore, and uh, even though China has uh, suspended the most debt, uh, their denominator is is much bigger. That being said, the culprit that Janet Yellen should be focusing on is the other third, and that is the private sector bondholders, which are largely the reason why the Common Framework is uh, is at a standstill. And Janet Yellen oversees, uh, or at least the United States oversees, the majority of these bond contracts and the firms that are in New York, the rest of them are in London, uh, and the U.S. and and the West, or G7, has has really... Uh, failed in, in leadership on that uh, during the Iraq war both countries uh, not only spearheaded a UN Security Council resolution uh, to to suspend debt and uh, and reduce the amount of overall debt in Iraq they also made sure that you couldn't litigate in New York or London there hasn't been any of that kind of action now uh, even though that this situation is much more global relative to the Iraq situation. Uh, uh, years ago, so why am I optimistic? Well, there's a there's an understanding in a vacuum, right? We we know that the common framework needs to be reworked. Uh, that was called upon for, by the World Bank in January, and now we have this compounded crisis where many more countries are are in are in debt distress. Now, with respect to linking it to climate change, one of the things that didn't get as much attention in everyone's press releases around the Glasgow Climate Summit is that the V20, the vulnerable group of 20 finance ministers, which incidentally uh, is now really the V55, there's 55 uh, emerging market and developing countries that are members of the V20. They called on uh, the world community to rework uh, these debt schemes to bake climate change right into it uh, and recoveries that are inclusive uh, for for their populations. These are the countries that are getting hit by increased shocks of hurricanes and flooding and droughts on a, on a daily basis that impact their economies, and these compounding uh, issues such as the interest rate, the wheat prices, and uh, oil only accentuate that. And what they're proposing is a scheme whereby all creditors, not just the uh, not just public creditors, but also private creditors and international institutions uh, swap out their debt with emerging market and developing countries that uh, are in debt distress in exchange for new bonds that are linked to climate and development outcomes. And what they propose is that uh, that be done voluntarily by the Paris Club and and the Chinese public banks like they were in the DSSI. But... uh, for the international institutions that they go back to, say, the HIPPIC initiative and they sell gold to be able to uh, pay those debts back. And the key to getting the private sector involved uh, is something analogous to uh, the Brady bonds that happened in the 1990s and and, in the the early 2000s, where you could guarantee the new bonds... Uh, To the private sector, Uh, the the private sector now has to realize that some of this money is just never going to come back. And so why not renegotiate on a guarantee that you will get the new stream of of money coming through? And if the new bonds are linked to climate and development outcomes, uh, we might be able to solve this crisis and uh, put ourselves back on track to uh, meet our climate and development goals. The IMF and World Bank uh, are supposed to have uh, dealing with the common framework in the rising debt crisis at the center of their meetings in a couple weeks in April. Uh, Also, Kristalina Gorgieva, the managing director of the IMF, had promised to bring together a climate for debt uh, scheme uh, to Glasgow. That didn't quite happen. They didn't have anything that was strong enough to deliver to Glasgow. Uh, The V20 and and folks in the the scholarly community like us uh, really urge the IMF and the World Bank to link these two things together. Let's link debt relief with new finance, new liquidity uh, to a green and inclusive recovery. And now that there's 55 finance ministers out there calling for this every day, that gives me a little hope.
2: I I appreciate the hope. I I don't think I share your optimism only based on the fact that we saw in the Jakarta finance minister and central bank meeting, central bank head meeting for the G20, debt relief wasn't really on, the, on their agenda that much. They barely talked about it. What they did do, though, is they started accusing each other of being the, the culprit. The Chinese came out of it and said it's the, it's the global north that's the problem. The, Janet Yellen, as we talked about, pointed her finger at the Chinese for dragging their feet, is what she said. I mean, it was not really what we wanted to see coming out of it. As we've said on previous shows, the house is burning right now. I mean, it's burning. It's on fire. And this is where, again, Congress has a role to play. And this, as you've pointed out, it's the United States that has the regulatory oversight for Wall Street. The laws can be changed to loosen up the fiduciary burdens on the hedge funds and the mutual funds that right now are legally bound not to give financial relief and debt restructuring. They can't do it even if they wanted to. But Congress can actually change the laws and the parliament in London can change the laws. But they haven't done anything because the financial services industry in Washington is so powerful and doesn't see it in their interest. And so the last point, Kevin, I'd like just to kind of rebut some of your optimism, not to be the party pooper here, but just to kind of see it from a different point of view, is the bondholders have said, we're not gonna take the haircut unless we see what the Chinese are doing behind closed doors. And they are fed up with the lack of transparency in the Chinese debt process. We've heard this over and over and over again. And until the Chinese change their ways and be more transparent in their dealings in places like Zambia and Kenya and elsewhere, it's hard to see that there's going to be a lot of progress. How do you respond to, to my negative outlook to quash your optimism?
0: Yeah, I, I, should, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What, I shouldn't, I, I'm not wearing rose-colored glasses. I just know the history well enough to say that it's the first time in history that a collective group of developing countries have demanded debt relief. Usually when a country says, I need debt relief, that's a signal to the global markets that you can't pay your debts and, uh, and, and your financiers uh, disappear from your, your countries. And so these countries are showing that they are paying such a price that they have to be collectively together and ask for it. And so I guess I'm just optimist, or optimist. maybe optimism isn't the right word, but I'm inspired by the fact that there are uh, 55 finance ministers out there that are saying is enough is enough. And that is, uh, that's the first time we've seen that uh, in, in quite some time. Now, you're right. Uh, there is a uh, 1933-like vacuum in the global economic system. There is no leadership uh, by the Europeans, by the United States, or, or the Chinese. It used to be that the U.S. would lead on a lot of these things, but, uh, but it's become captured uh, by a lot of the private sector interests. And thus far, the, the Treasury and the Fed have, have not been able to lead uh, on, on these issues. Uh, and like you alluded to, the, the Chinese are reluctant to, to lead for a variety of reasons, as are, the, as are the European Union. And so these G20 meetings are a bunch of finger pointing, as are the G7 ones. Um, which, uh, which will, which will be even harder because that's a small and shrinking size of the world economy. And, uh, you know, just a week and a half ago, Congress cut off uh, funding for all of the pledges that the Biden administration made at the G7 in terms of SDR recycling and at Glasgow in terms of of uh, financing the Green Climate Fund. And so it really, it really snips our legitimacy on the world stage. And so we have a crisis of multilateralism now. I actually just wrote a book about that with uh, Richard Codzell Wright calling The Case for a New Bretton Woods. So you're, uh, you, you have a friend here in, in the sort of overall political economy analysis. I guess I'll just pull back and say I'm inspired by developing countries saying is enough is enough. And the question is, uh, can the United States, uh, China, and uh, the rest of the West continue to sort of ignore that? What gives me a little bit more on the to get it back to the China story is that you you don't see the United States or the European Union or the Japanese uh, while there's now a widespread acknowledgement that the common framework isn't working uh, you don't see them coming forth with alternative proposals and you will um, uh, you will you will interview one of our colleagues who's been following the Chinese lately. They have acknowledged that this is working, isn't working, is working, and they are starting to brainstorm solutions. And uh, they are considering creating a Shanghai club that would be analogous to the Paris club. China, for very good reasons, does not want to join the Paris club. The Paris club requires a draconian international monetary fund program as a prerequisite to get any relief from them. And the academic research and, and obviously uh, the in-country experience shows that these programs are uh, are do not help uh, long-term growth prospects and have really adverse consequences on the poor and exacerbate inequality. So China hasn't wanted to uh, has hasn't wanted to sign on to the Paris Club because it's linked to the IMF and and its interference into the sovereign uh, autonomy of countries' economic policies. So their proposal for a Shanghai Club is well. Like we all know, it's not just the China Development Bank, the Export-Import Bank, but it's also ICBC, Bank of China, et cetera, that all of these Chinese creditors are a large group that in and of themselves are hard to coordinate on. And China is, is mulling over now. It's just, they're just debating it. It's creating a club of creditors within China that could uh, act as one whole unit uh, in negotiations. So at least the Chinese themselves would be coordinated because like you said there's all this finger pointing and the private sector saying I'm not going to give I'm not going to give relief if the country's going to turn around and give it to China China's saying I'm not going to give relief if the country's going to turn around and give it to pimCO and uh, it's been a convenient set of finger pointing the truth of the matter is it's it's really a coordination problem everybody is. Uh, everybody is pointing fingers at each other and this is where you need real lit- leadership. The United States and the United Kingdom could put all this to rest on the on the private sector end and then there'd be a negotiating chip, right? If if the United States and, and the UK stood up and said, okay, we're going to bring the private sector in line, if China, you coordinate uh, your creditors, that would bring us all to the table in a much different way. To China's credit, they are... Uh, debating and deliberating about what schemes might look like if they did coordinate on their own. So I'm, uh, I'm heartened by that. I guess I'll stop saying the word optimistic, but uh, there is real movement on the China front. I think they're more willing to at least publicly admit that some of this financing is just not going to come back. And uh, there's more to this finance than just building roads. This is about building long-term relationships and uh, maybe giving countries a break now uh, will help in the longer run.
2: Yeah, and that scholar that Kevin referenced, who we're going to speak with next week, actually Ying Chen from also the Global Development Policy Center. He's been writing a lot about this idea called the Shanghai Model. So we're going to deep dive on that next week.
3: Cecilia, you know, like as, as someone who who lives in in a developing country um, with its with its own set of debt problems. Um, Sometimes it's you know one, one can feel kind of despair you know kind of because it you know because because you know Africa as a continent individual African countries tend to have very little control over any of these dynamics, and they end up just kind of it, it feels like you kind of just beholden to these these kind of impersonal um, you know kind of global trends. So I was actually wondering whether that it looks like that from your perspective as well, or whether you see some kind of like do. Global South countries have any kind of leverage in in these processes, and you know kind of an, and what would you know as Kevin mentioned, there's a little bit of collectivity developing among them like what, you know kind of what what kind of muscle could they could could they flex you know if if some of them got together
1: yeah that's a great question, Kobus, and I think that there is to some extent a privilege of the global north and being able to have optimism and hope and certainly um I recognize that in, in some of the ways that that we see these issues. Uh, somebody has to hope for the best, though. Somebody has to be the one providing that optimism. But, you know, I think um, I think that in a lot of the research on China's engagement overseas, there does tend to be a tendency to portray China as a monolithic entity that is sort of jerking around its, its partners in these host countries. And... You know, I think that the the sense of despair that you mentioned, um, you know, the sense that, that, you know, maybe certain countries or um, actors are like but pawns in a global game. I mean, I, you know, I think that may be a general feeling when you look at the broader relationship. But I also think it's important to point out that, um, you know, when you're looking at sort of a case-by-case um basis uh, especially in the energy sector that there are winners and losers even at the local level um in some of these in, in many of the host countries and it's important to point you know to point out these distinctions too and neither side the chinese side or the host country side is is totally monolithic um, and so recently i contributed to a chapter in a book that came out on the political economy of coal um, and there were uh case studies of, of many countries around the world. And of course, given China's dominance um, in in global coal development, there there were also explorations of many countries' relationships with China and the development of those countries' coal resources or coal-fired power generating projects. And in the coal sector, you do see that there are a lot of um, you know, vested interests in host countries that are benefiting from the ways that they engage with Chinese companies um, in developing these coal plants. And there's a strong preference for continuing um, to develop coal over renewable energy. And so it's sort of an example of agency that unfortunately doesn't bode well for, for climate goals that may be set by China or by host countries. But it is an example where where agency and, and the objectives of many of the host country actors do play a strong role. Um, and Kobus, you asked about what could happen, you know, if these... Uh, these countries sort of um, band together. And I think uh, Kevin talked about some of the negotiating blocks that that are emerging. Um, But I think, you know, there, you know, I, I hope again, the optimism coming out um, that there is opportunity for, for regional coordination. Um, You know, we mentioned the Southern Africa region. Um, I also briefly mentioned um, Southeast Asia, Mekong or ASEAN um, to be setting uh, rigorous targets for um, for the implementation of climate goals, for example, scaling up renewable energy, um, and setting such targets at a regional level can show, you know, strong commitment, but also a, a political will to unlock some of these resources and and move on the part of the host countries away from coal. Um, and a lot of those, um, you know, companies, many of them government owned, that that have been continued to be vested in fossil fuels. So um, there's another optimistic viewpoint, but hopefully one that, that sheds some light on the dynamics between China and host countries.
2: We do appreciate the optimism. Please don't get me wrong. Please do not get me wrong. Very quickly before we uh, before we go, uh, Cecilia, one of the key points that you made in the policy brief that you wrote with Xinyue was there was some context here, and we haven't mentioned this. We've been focusing on China specifically and the downturn in their financing, but the key point that you made in the report with Xinyuan was they're by no means alone in this. Can you give us a little bit of the bigger picture of what development finance looks like in 2021 and 2022?
1: Sure. So I think the the most important context to give is that development finance in general did substantially increase in 2020, um, especially uh, in the health sector due to pandemic related, um, loans, but, um, there has been a decrease since then. Um, you know, in the energy sector, it wasn't zero in 2021 from other lenders, but it was, it was at, uh, quite a low. Um, and to the extent that the energy sector is sort of a bellwether, um, for other sectors, um, that China's engaged in. I think, uh, you know, stay tuned for, for what our databases will be showing about China's regional and um, uh, other sectoral engagement uh, that we will be releasing data on uh, the rest of 2021 over the next few months. Um, so, uh, yeah, stay tuned.
3: A, a very basic question. Um, at the end, you know, we, we've we focused a lot over the last year or two on on um, the lack of transparency in Chinese lending, um, and there's a lot of a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and a lot of it is not unique to China. Um but you know, we, we are in a moment where, where China is facing a lot of criticism because you know, because of perceptions that 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 their loan contracts are particularly you know, that that they particularly lack transparency. Do um, well, either by both of you. Do 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 you foresee a change in that approach? Do you foresee all of this criticism in some kind, some ways, kind of like pushing China to become a more transparent lender in, in in terms of its loan contracts, or is it you know kind of is is that just the way that the game is going to be played in the future?
0: Debt transparency is, is 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 fundamental to the solution. As Anna Gelpern noted, she was one of the authors in an incredible report uh, published by the Center for Global Development that shows the lack of transparency in Chinese overseas finance. Anna Gelpern is probably the world's expert on sovereign debt, has been quick to n- note every time uh, that it's not just China that's uh, not transparent and that the private sector is uh, is at least just as bad. And so to me, again, this is a... Area where the United States could take some real leadership and negotiate with China, right? Uh, get away from this finger pointing. If the United States could get robust uh, changes in the transparency of debt through New York and so forth, in exchange for China doing the same, uh, perhaps we could get get somewhere. The IMF and the World Bank and et cetera—that's very very transparent debt that we all can download and look at. Uh, all the time. But the two glaring gaps are China and the private sector. And and just like on debt restructuring, we need leadership on this. And there is means for a U.S.-China set of negotiations uh, if just some party would lead. This is the kind of thing that could be done in a G20 framework uh, outside of a major global conflict. Cecilia, let's get some
2: final thoughts from you.
1: Yeah, I just want to add to that. I think there's two layers of transparency when it comes to attempts to understand China's overseas economic activity. The first is understanding what projects are happening and where at just a very basic level. And then the second layer is understanding how they're happening. So the terms of the contracts that that COBUS was mentioning in particular. But I don't think you can get to the second layer without going through the first layer. And I think that, you know, there have been you know, global efforts, including our own at the Global Development Policy Center, to to track what China is doing overseas and to compare it to what um, other development finance institutions are doing overseas. Um, you know, having poked around in the data for a very long time now, I can tell you that there is a lot of variation even across multilateral development banks and how easy it is to parse their information on on their overseas projects. And how much information is provided about basic things like the amount or the size of the project. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's some progress in understanding just at a basic level what's going on. Um, of course, that's a goal of our own Data group at uh, the GDP center, the data analysis for transparency and accountability, it's all in the name there, you know, and I think that there are some indications that, you know, the the Chinese government may also be taking steps to, to shed some light on that sort of first layer of transparency, you know, MoFcom does have a, a public... Uh, database of projects. it's it's not comprehensive. There's a lot of improvement that could be made. but you know I think that's sort of a a first step before even you know being able to sort of push for understanding the terms of the contracts and um, you know, like you all said that this this isn't necessarily unique to China. I think it's all part of of bringing you know China to the table from the optimist perspective. Um, so that there there can be more transparency about what's actually happening with these contracts.
2: Cecilia Han Springer is the assistant director of the Global China Initiative at the Global Development Policy Center and Kevin Gallagher is the director of the Global Development Policy Center. Thank you both for joining us on the show. We're going to put links to all of your new research and the new data set on the show on in the show notes of our page also for subscribers to our newsletter. Every Tuesday, GDPC is publishing a new column from Cecilia's team and Kevin's team. They're absolutely fascinating. By the way, you can go on the website. They are not behind the paywall. So these are open to everybody. We share them on Twitter. So every Tuesday, new columns are coming out from the Global Development Policy Center. And we're super proud to have this partnership with Kevin and Cecilia's team there. Uh, Kevin, if people want to follow the Global Development Policy Center on social media and to find out more about what you guys are doing, where can they find you?
0: Uh, They can find us at GDP underscore center or on Cecilia's uh, handle or mine at Kevin P Gallagher. Just want to say it's great to work with you folks on on this. And thanks for having us on the show again. It's
2: great. And Cecilia, what's your uh, social media handle on Twitter?
1: I'm at Han underscore Cecilia. Um, and yeah, would love to connect.
2: Okay, we're gonna have a whole bunch of links in the show notes today, so put them. We'll take take a look at them there. Kevin, Cecilia, thank you again. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
2: It's interesting because throughout our entire discussion, we went an entire hour and we covered so much of the misery of humanity over the past hour. I apologize to our listeners for such a depressing conversation. That wasn't the intent here. We didn't mention COVID once, and yet. It's almost as if the pandemic's over, but it's not over. There's a new variant that's just popped up in Europe called BA2. Here in Southeast Asia, everybody's got COVID. I mean, Omicron is just everywhere in Southeast Asia right now. No one's really that worried about it because people aren't dying from it, but we're not out of the woods yet on this pandemic thing. And so add that to the list of woes that developing countries in those 68 countries that were part of the DSSI having to confront with, they still are going to have rather high public health costs, for at least in the short term, until we know for sure that the pandemic's over. And we know that the pandemic is going to end sooner in the wealthy parts of the world and later in poorer parts of the world.
3: Well, maybe, maybe, because, but like, you know, like I, I might actually push back on that because, because even as, you know, as, as you say, we are seeing, we're seeing these Omicron spikes, you know, kind of all over East, uh, rich East, East Asia at the moment. Um, and, but you know, like the research has come out in South Africa, like crazy research that I couldn't really understand to get my head around, but like they, they found that, that 80% of the South African population has already had COVID. Um, and so they are actually so so in a, this weird way. South Africa is this, is this test case of of a country that that just through. Life and infection, you know, kind of even though South Africa's had a high death toll, they, they're they in a way kind of like developing, they're, they're moving close to something like herd immunity. No, you know, kind of, um, and I think this is true for, for, for several kind of poorer countries, actually, who didn't, who didn't actually, who couldn't have afford like the, some, of, some of the kind of full lockdowns and so on that, that we see seen in the richer world.
2: That's fair. That's a fair point. Okay, I stand corrected that y- you're right. I guess the only assumption there is that, the pandemic ends now, and this is what it is. And there may be a a version two that comes out. But again, that's speculation. So you're you're right. And here in Vietnam, of course, uh, we've performed relatively well, all things being equal, even though right now Omicron rates are surging. But again, hospitalization and death rates are still relatively low. No one's really panicking. So you're right. Certain parts of the developing world may actually get through this thing much better off than, say, the United States and even parts of Europe that completely uh, China is interesting enough now, now now dealing with it, but it's just all part of this kind of bigger mosaic of challenges that are trying to find solutions for.
3: Well, you know, kind of, I think here here that the, today's discussion, I think, has been incredibly valuable, because because you know, kind of, us and, and me included, we, we tend to think very much, you know, as as the global north, and you know, in, in this case, I also include China in that, in that group, as, as basically the, the kind of main actors, you know, like, what are they willing to do, what can't they do, what is politically possible for them to do, and what isn't, and so on. But like, you know, kind of as, as Cecilia's point it out the the formation or the formulation of of demand in the global south is a really key part of this and the fact that they aren't that that that, the global south governments aren't doing the job to kind of to position themselves in terms of what their options are in for for renewable energy that they're not developing projects that they're not kind of studying up on on you know kind of on, on 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 the issue that is a really huge thing um and you know so 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 the, the kind of collectivities that, uh, that that Kevin mentioned is a kind of a first step towards solving that situation, and so knowledge sharing. Like we, we've 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 heard, you know, in the past, we've heard these kind of calls in in the debt conversation that there needs to be more knowledge sharing among among borrowers. You know that that um, that it's, it's fine to talk about transparency on among the Chinese or transparency among you know kind of other global uh, global North countries, but what is also needed actually is radical transparency among borrowers and like knowledge sharing about borrowers and this is also super true in in relation to to the climate. Um, you know what's what's needed is is for global south countries that have made some significant progress in terms of, of climate financing, in terms of, of of affordable projects, in terms of getting good stuff out of China. Like as as we've seen, you know, kind of like you know some some countries in Africa have managed to, to get China to build amazing kind of renewable energy installations. There needs to be more knowledge sharing among those countries in terms of how they how they made it. Work um, because, as we've seen, you know, without that, there's no moving forward. If there is some kind of some kind of demand, some kind of articulated demand, and a clear set of possible projects, then it starts opening up discussions about who might be able to fund them. Because then it starts opening up discussions about who might be able to make money out of them you know kind of which is the real discussion I think everyone should be having um, and you know so in that sense you know kind of like there's a there's a lot more impetus needed from the south in order to, to push to, to pull this forward some kind of like leadership from below is needed I think
2: how does that actually work in practice
3: I guess the the, the question becomes. Who, who gauges credibility? You know, kind of, and on, 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 on which which criteria? Um, the the there's a there's a great kind of credibility vacuum, I think, in in relation to climate solutions. Um, there's a, there's a real kind of like space there for any kind of credibility entrepreneur wants to wants to kind of get get, get cracking. There's there's a lot of space, um, you know. So in that sense, you know, it like a country like South Africa is a massive polluter. It's like one yeah. one of you know because South Africa as such a screwed up energy grid um, you know it it ends up being per capita one of the higher polluters in the world Um, but that you know kind of so in in a weird way you know that that kind of makes South Africa a bit of a climate skunk in the world but at the same time you know that could be actually a position from which to lead you know which is similar for a country like India for example a country like Brazil all countries that have a lot of energy of renewable energy potential and at the moment are massive polluters Um, you know like and, and in that sense, you know, that that may well have to be the position from which to, to move, um, you know, because we don't have many, many better positions than that.
2: I don't agree at all. And respectfully, of course. And it's one of the few times you and I are going to disagree here. <laughs> I think we're going into a very fragmented geopolitical era now. This is the post-post-Cold War era. There is no center. There is no leadership. No one can build a coalition large enough to impose themselves or to create any leverage on the other. And because we have these multi-poles now that uh, we have the Chinese, we have the Europeans, we have the Americans, we have some uh, aggregation of the BRICS, the Brazilians in South America. But again, there's no center. There's no there there. So there's no one to really capture leadership other than, say, spiritual leadership. Sure, it looks great, but there's no leverage. And without any leverage, nothing gets done. So I just—I don't know in this new world that we're in— where US and European power relatively is going down, and China and India and Russia to some, Russia as a disruptor is going up. What do we do? I just don't see any progress on that, because I don't see how developing countries can amass a a unit strong enough to exact any type of, of leverage over those who have much more power.
3: Well, you know, kind of maybe, maybe are One, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, I think those are really, really important points, and and, and I think they're all true. I, I would say, however, that that you know, kind of maybe, maybe what we need is alternative thinking about what about what what this kind of group forming could look like and maybe we don't need such large groups maybe it is a good place to start for like for example something like a body like like this uh, like southern african development community for example you know to to just like if 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 those few countries can just kind of get together and set some kind of unified agenda for for renewable and green development that is already a big thing, and you know, kind of, and and the the great thing about Africa is that it provides this kind of like neutral space in which you know neutral space is kind of resists these kind of global global kind of like power blocks in a way you know kind of because because you know because in a way you know Africa isn't isn't important enough you know kind of to 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 be to be at the heart of these kind of like massive kind of geopolitical battles so it provides a space for a kind of a neutral space for trying stuff out and and a possible kind of also neutral space for for mixed financing from 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 different sources but you know kind of if 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 a group of countries can just simply set forth an agenda that's already a big step you know um and in a a way them being a smaller group rather than a, a pan Global South group, for example, makes that makes setting an agenda much easier.
2: In principle, you're right, a hundred percent. But these regional groups in Africa have not taken that leadership role. I mean, all I think about is ECOWAS, the West African group. That's the Economic Community of West Africa. Last year, when Nigeria and, and, and Ghana got into their border spat, they said nothing. Yeah,
3: yeah, nothing. you're right. You know, I mean, like okay? I like mean, so
2: if, if we're talking about these regional groups standing up to the rest of the world they're fighting with each other and these groups are not taking the leadership role within themselves. Yeah, and, no, you're and, right. <laughs> and, I don't you're know. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. So, and the African Union is not going to do it because the African Union, like any large body, whether it's the European Union, the US Congress, is just too big to have that kind of effect.
3: And also too beholden to hydrocarbon interests.
2: And too beholden to hydrocarbon interests. So, But also because one of the other challenges in Africa is that you have these hugely disparate sized economies next to each other. So Ghana and Nigeria is a great example. And so Nigeria will always leverage its weight over Ghana in forums like ECOWAS. And same South Africa would probably do the same next to its neighbors. Again, I I agree with you in principle. It's a lovely concept, but in practice, it hasn't borne itself out. And by the way, I don't think Africa is unique in this concept. ASEAN here in Southeast Asia is also weak for very similar reasons.
3: Yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, you know, kind of, I, I think, I think, you know, kind of, I, I am to a certain extent kind of mining optimism, and, you know. You know, okay, so so ESCOM is never going to be an example of anything good in the world, which is like for those who haven't followed our complaints over the years, ESCOM is South Africa's, like, semi-state-owned power utility it's like a a terrible power utility you're really polluting really bad at service delivery rolling blackouts all the time but the one thing that ESCOM does is it sells energy to a bunch of other countries. So, you know, Botswana gets ESCOM power, Mozambique gets ESCOM power, Zimbabwe gets it. So, in a way, even though ESCOM is a complete nightmare, um, in it in, in some kind of way already represents a kind of a de facto integrated kind of regional system, you know. Um, so, you know, again, the, this is a complete kind of... <sighs> Like idealism and blue sky thinking, but but you know, kind of say, for example, you know, kind of like a, a country like Namibia, currently very small economy, but like it's, it's it's one of the countries that gets more sunshine hours per day than than you know, kind of most most other places in the world. Um, you know, there's there's like Namibia as a potential kind of solar power. Superpower, you know, it's, it's a huge country, very very low population, incredible amounts of 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 you know very few clouds, you know it's it's, it's mostly desert, um, so you know so so, they, they, you know what what I'm trying to say is that there there are the the kind of loose pieces are there. You know, kind of some regional integration, some, you know, kind of some, even some grid integration, some, you know, kind of a, a lot of potential. So what one needs is, is for, is for a small group of governments to kind of work together to pull these into, into one direction. Um, and, and, in, you know, kind of at the moment, I agree with you, at the moment in Africa, like those don't seem to come together. Um, you know, there, there seems to be very little options for those. But, you know, kind of like one, like, de- you know, demand at least, like, at least, articulating a shared demand is already a step forward you know kind of so maybe that is where the global south should start
2: that's a great idea let's leave the conversation there it's been a fascinating hour really appreciate kevin and cecilia coming on again if you want to follow all the great work that they're doing you can see it on our website you can just look for the boston university global development policy center we've got them there as an author also subscribers to our newsletter and to our website They get it delivered every Tuesday at 6 a.m. Washington time right into their inbox. So all of this great content coming from Global Development Policy Center. Absolutely fascinating. These guys are pushing a lot of new ideas out. And so it's absolutely essential to keep abreast of everything that they're doing. Also, a quick housekeeping note. Our brand new French language podcast hosted by our francophone editor, Jérôme Nima, is now on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. You can get it on Spotify, everywhere that you get podcasts. You can subscribe to it. Uh, it is an amazing show. He is doing just fantastic work. And this is the first show of its kind in this space. And so we would love for you to check it out, of course, if you speak French. Uh, so we would we'd love that. Just look for Afrique Sheen. that's A-F-R-I-K. K, not Q U E, but K C H I N E, right there in Apple Podcasts. And you'll find it. Also, you can follow Efrik Sheen on Twitter as well. And uh, so we'll put links to that in our show notes as well. And you can find that also on our Twitter handle. You'll see in our Twitter page, we've got links to everything that Giro and the team are doing on the Francophone side. And Arabic, of course, comes uh, after Ramadan this year in late April, early May. So we're very excited about that. So we're going to leave our conversation there for now. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Of course, if you have any feedback, questions, comments, you can reach me directly, Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. People are always surprised that I write back really long, lengthy emails. So if you'd like to get into a discussion, I'm always, always eager to have these chats. Feel free to email me directly. I love having these conversations about everything that we've said on the show. If you agree, disagree, or just want to say hi, we love getting those emails. So for Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.